It's the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. The New Testament records seven phrases Jesus uttered as he hung on the cross. And Christians around the world commonly use these seven last words as a focus in Good Friday worship services. Maybe you're not sure what Good Friday is, so my guest today is James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and a New York Times bestselling author who recently published a book called Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus. This book's a nice example of the intersections between academic and devotional writing. If you have questions or comments about this episode, you can reach me at mipodcast at byu.edu. Thanks for listening to another episode. James Martin is a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large at America, the National Catholic Review. His latest book is called Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus. And uh, f- should I call you Father Martin, or what would you prefer? Uh, Jim is fine, whatever Jim, you okay. prefer, though. Okay, well, I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule uh, today, Jim. And I mean, you're, you're probably used to larger platforms. I know you've appeared on NPR, BBC, and you've written in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, you've been on Fox, and the Colbert Report. So thanks for uh, adding the prestigious Maxwell Institute podcast to that list. <laughs> I am delighted to be with you. <laughs> so I follow you on social media, and I see that, that you just got back from Rome. Um, and what, what was the trip for? Well, I work for a Catholic magazine called America, and um, our editor normally goes over uh, to meet with uh, different Vatican officials and uh, religion journalists who cover Rome. And then also, uh, I'm a Jesuit, um, which is a Catholic religious order, and so we meet with, uh, you know, people at the Jesuit headquarters in Rome. So uh, it was quite busy. I ended up sort of doing a little too much, uh, and it was also very interesting. I don't know Rome or Vatican City all that well, despite, you know, what people think about Jesuits popping over to Rome all the time. So uh, it was really interesting. I saw the inside of the Vatican for the first time and uh, met a lot of interesting officials and journalists and Jesuit folks. So it was good, but I, I came back <laughs> totally wiped out. Did it feel sort of like a pilgrimage? I mean, those are pretty, you know, that's that's home base for you guys. So, Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, it did not, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Uh, I had been to Rome two years ago on a pilgrimage with uh, a group of um, uh, adults um, who, who were parents of um, uh, students who went to Jesuit high schools. And that was much more prayerful. I mean, we visited different churches and, you know, we really toured around. This time I said to myself, well, gee, I, you know, I hope that there is time for, you know, a little more prayer and kind of uh, quiet and pilgrimage. But I ended up, you know, emailing people saying, would you like to uh, meet with me? And everybody said yes. And uh, (laughs) so, you know, the irony was I really went over there with the intention of it being a little more prayerful and it was not. So oh, there's prayer go over. Beat, I guess, right? There's this Absolutely, yes. But <laughs> I would have liked some <laughs> more quiet time. So maybe the next time I go over. So we're recording this interview on uh, February 9th. It's a, it's a Tuesday today. It happens to be the day before Ash Wednesday. And this is especially timely, I think, because your latest book, Seven Last Words, discusses the phrases mentioned in the Gospels that, that Jesus utters on the cross. And a lot of my listeners probably uh, come from traditions, especially Latter-day Saints, that, that don't have a heavy liturgical calendar. We don't celebrate Ash Wednesday and all the attendant liturgical observations sort of leading up to Easter. So I thought it would be nice to get a primer on the liturgical calendar uh, from you uh, first. 
Sure. Well, you know, the liturgical year basically follows the life of Jesus. And, uh, you know, it begins with Advent, so the time leading up to uh, the birth of Jesus at Christmas. And then it continues through, um, you know, through his public ministry. And then Lent comes. Lent is a 40-day preparation period before Easter. And so, you know, towards the end of Lent, we have Holy Week, which, um, you know, you read the uh, the events and what we call the passion narratives, the the, the uh, stories from the Gospels that talk about his death, and then Easter, of course, is the resurrection, and then we move back into what's called ordinary time, which is you know again sort of looking at Jesus's public ministry, the healing and the preaching and things like that, and then you're back to Advent. So, so every year you sort of follow Jesus through his life, and uh, which is great because I was talking to someone just yesterday uh, about Lent, and this fellow said, well. You know, every Lent I seem to have to kind of go back and and look at my life and and sort of repent and and try to do a little better. And and I said, well, it's kind of great that Lent comes uh, around once a year. You know, because there's always chance to repent. It's not it's not once and for all. You know, I mean, you're always trying to to do a little better. But essentially, the liturgical year uh, is is following the life of Jesus, and that sort of gives a rhythm to to the sort of chronological time as well. How about Ash Wednesday in particular, which which is tomorrow? What 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 do people do on Ash Wednesday? Well, traditionally, um, as the beginning of Lent, uh, people start their um, practices of there's there's three parts to Lent uh, in our tradition: uh, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. I mean, I'm not sure if that's uh, part of the LDS tradition as well, but prayer, of course, kind of redoubling your 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 prayerful and spiritual life, um, fasting. And the reason we do that originally, it's not simply to just you know sort of punish yourself, um, but the original reason was to fast to save money to give to the poor. So there was a generous um, effect of that as well. And also, I think fasting and uh, giving things up reminds us that you know we do have a will, and uh, you know our bodies aren't kind of in control of us. Uh, and then alms giving, of course, you know giving alms and being charitable. Most people, most Catholics try to, quote-unquote, give things up, which, you know, which is certainly laudable. But I always suggest trying to do things, too, you know, being kind, Mm. being more charitable. So, you know, looking at it from a more positive viewpoint. And then today, of course, um, which I forgot about until you mentioned it, is Mardi Gras, which means Fat Tuesday, which means that, (laughs) apparently, you know, supposedly people go crazy. I saw you're uh, wearing your beads there. (laughs) Yeah, right. I wish. (laughs) I'm not really, there's not a whole lot of craziness I can get into today. Um, So, but for, you know, certainly in New Orleans and places like that, there's parties and things. Sort of like get it all out right now before you. Yeah, yeah. Which is a cultural thing. Like it's nuts. It, yeah, no, it's definitely not part of. No, they do not. That's not in the Gospels. I mean, the, the disciples, you know, did not have a big party before yeah, Holy Week. Yeah, exactly. Although, you know, we have to remember that Jesus, Jesus's first miracle was turning water into wine at a yes. party. So, you That's know, right. he wasn't wasn't all totally a man of sorrows. We'll talk about that in a minute too, because you've written on that. But uh, mm-hmm. so, seven last words. The book Seven Last Words is based on sermons that you were invited to to deliver last year uh, on Good Friday. Uh, in 2015 by Cardinal Timothy Dolan at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. So I'd like to know something about that invitation and the sermon itself and, and whether a lot of Catholics sort of celebrate Good Friday by focusing on these seven last words. Well, that's a good question. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Christian tradition that um, crosses different denominations. I don't know if it's as, it's as well known as some other uh, Christian traditions. Basically, I mean, as you say, it focuses on 
It's a little confusing for people. The seven last words aren't exactly words. They're sayings right. or phrases. And they are, for listeners that may not know them, I'll just, I'll just list them. They're very short. Uh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. He says that to the good thief. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Woman, here is your son. Here is your mother. He says that to the, to the beloved disciple. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I am thirsty, and it is finished. And so that is the sum total of all of the things he says when he's on the cross as recorded in each of the Gospels. Now, interestingly, they're not, you know, not all of them are in each of the Gospels. In fact, you know, most of them appear just in one or two Gospels. Uh, and, you know, the from around the 16th century, there were liturgical uh, services, or, you know, church services, basically, on Good Friday, where the seven last words would be combined, and there would be a little prayer around each one, a little music, um, and then a sermon. So I was invited last year uh, by Cardinal Dolan, who's the Archbishop of New York, um, to preach at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And funny story, um, normally when you go to seven last words services uh, on Good Friday, they're usually from 12 to 3, which is the traditional time that you know, we, we think or we commemorate Jesus being on the cross, although it's kind of hard to say exactly when that was. Um, normally, it's seven different people, you know, so you have from seven different denominations. So, so, you know, you might have a Catholic, an Episcopalian, a Mormon, a Baptist, a, you know, Methodist, etc., preaching on each of the words, each of the sayings. And Cardinal Dolan invited me, and I said, well, which one do you want me to do? And he said, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my Jesuit friend said, all of them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I feel sorry for the, for the congregation. Um, but it enabled me to, um, you know, give a certain overarching theme to it, um, which is that Jesus understands us, that, you know, his sufferings and his experience on the cross, you know, reminds us that he understands what we're going through, physical suffering, emotional suffering, and even spiritual suffering. And so, uh, that was the kind of theme that I brought to to each of the seven last words last year. And it was a lot of fun. I really was very, I was nervous because it was St. Patrick's Cathedral. But, you yeah. know, once I got started, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm preaching about Jesus. I do this every Sunday. So, so I, 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 I was so nervous. Talk for a second about that venue and, and why, why that would be sort of an intim- intimidating place for you to speak. Well, St. Patrick's Cathedral is uh, the uh, Catholic, the home of the sort of uh, Catholic archdiocese here in New York. It's it's the main cathedral in New York. Uh, it's, I would say, you know, world famous. I mean, Pope Francis just visited it a mm-hmm. few months ago. Uh, it's very big <laughs> mm. and very daunting when you go inside. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of a magnet for people. It's a big, you know, it's a tourist attraction as well because it's so beautiful. Interestingly, when I was preaching there, it was under renovation. And so, you know, you always have this idea of what it's going to be like when you preach at some great place and you think, oh, it's going to be so beautiful and, you know, just so dramatic. And I walked in and there was scaffolding everywhere. (laughs) So that made me feel a little more relaxed. You know, it's like, okay, you know, it doesn't look as beautiful as it normally does. So, you know, we'll just sort of make do. I thought it was Um, cool in the foreword where uh, Cardinal Dolan mentioned that that it was undergoing physical renewal of the building and he sort of liked being in that setting because you were speaking on spiritual renewal and that it was sort of really, just really stuck out to him. 
Well, it did, and it was it stuck out to me, and it it also reminded me that uh, we're human beings, and that you know, just uh, as he said, just as if just as we have to go through spiritual renewal, and we're not perfect. You know, the the yeah. cathedral is not perfect. I mean, the only perfect person was Jesus. So, um, so it was it was kind of funny. It actually brought it back down to earth to me. I noticed, I did notice, however, that uh, by the time the Pope came, all the scaffolding was gone. <laughs> Yeah. So he obviously he obviously ranked. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Yeah, they yeah. yeah they left it up for you though. So yeah, fine. right. <laughs> well, did they fill it up pretty well? Did oh yeah from yeah there? it was it was packed and I I mean I think that was not for me it was because it was Ash Wednesday yeah. excuse me uh, Good Friday Good Friday yeah which is always very busy and you know the 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 service includes music and you know their choir and their organ is yeah. pretty amazing so they weren't they weren't coming just for me. So how long did it take? Because I, I sat down and read this book in an evening. It only took an hour or two. Yeah, the seven last words. That's a good question. The seven last words. The whole service takes uh, three hours. It's sometimes called the three hours or the, in Italian, the tre ore. Uh, and so it is that time between 12 and three. And growing up, for example, I did not come from a particularly religious Catholic family. I mean, my parents were Catholics, but we weren't sort of super Catholics. Right. But even us, uh, between 12 and 3, we were not allowed to have the radio on and the TV on. We had to be quiet. And we weren't, we would, we weren't going to church, but you know, we were supposed to be quiet. So that, that time, a lot of people in New York uh, know that they want to be quiet. And so naturally, they would go to St. Patrick's Cathedral. Mm, that's cool. Yeah, it was fun. So we're going to dive into a couple of phrases. Just one or two of them is discussed in your book. But before we do that, your intro uh, points out that a lot of Christians wonder why these particular utterances are scattered throughout the Gospels rather than being meticulously reported in each one. I think in the uh, introduction, you mentioned that one saying is in Matthew uh, and Mark. They each have one. There are three in Luke and then three in John. And they're not all the same. Uh, it seems like um, if, if any of his words would be passed on and meditated on, it, it would be these, but yet we have them sort of scattered. And you use this as a way to introduce people to New Testament criticism. Yeah, which is really important because when you think about it, and I'm sure many of your listeners you know, might be uh, thinking about this too, you would think, as you said, um, if anything, I mean, yeah. the, the, the things that he said from the cross would be recorded and treasured and uh, you know, and, and be in every gospel, but they're not, you know, and why is that? And basically, I start off the book with a little uh, description of how the New Testament, how the gospels were compiled, basically. And I, I remind people that it took place in several stages. So the first stage is Jesus's actual public ministry, you know, so he's, mm -hmm. he's there um, and he's preaching and he's healing. All right. Uh, and people are around to uh, witness that, you know, and not not just the 12 apostles or the disciples, we think maybe 70 disciples or the followers, you know, hundreds of people, but, you know, crowds. And so so that's that's the actual uh, sort of doing of the, uh, you know, the, the living out of his life um, and death and resurrection. And then came the oral tradition. So after he his his resurrection and his ascension. Uh, you know, people were passing around this these stories orally. And, you know, we have to remember a lot of people thought Jesus was going to come again. You know, you read the scriptures, and so they wouldn't have written down, you know, those things anyway. Um, so, so, but then as it becomes clear that um, some of the original witnesses are dying and Jesus would not, as it was expected, return soon, the next stage began, which was the actual putting together of the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
Um, and we have to remember each evangelist wrote for a different audience, right? And so would stress different parts of the story. They might leave out something. The same way that I, w- I always remind people, you know, if you read four different books about whomever, I'm reading a book now about Theodore Roosevelt, right? If you read four different books about Theodore Roosevelt by four different contemporaries, you know, you're going to get four different stories. They're going to leave right. something out. They're going to put stuff in. They're going to emphasize things. That doesn't mean that, you know, each of them are wrong, uh, but that, you know, kind of taken together, they give us a full portrait of Jesus. So, uh, you know, so some of the gospel writers would have left things out and left out, um, you know, uh, one of the, some of the last words, but also, you know, their communities might not have known them, you know, so they might not have been passed along the same way. So, so taken together, they give us a sense of Jesus's emotions and experiences uh, on the cross. I think, you know, it's very hard. I, I had a hard time with this in theology studies, but my theology professor who was a great scripture scholar and really helpful said, you know, we can't think of the gospel writers as reporters, you know, on the scene, you know, yeah. taking down notes. They simply weren't. I mean, some of them may have been there, but they weren't taking notes. They didn't have like uh, the fedora with the card sticking out. Well, of it. right. And they didn't have a tape recorder to stick <laughs> yeah. up to Jesus's mouth. And, you know, I mean, even in, um, you know, some of the most beloved passages like uh, what are called the infancy narratives when Jesus is born, they're different. Uh, and even some of the things he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, which uh, scripture scholars think he would have said many times, right? It wouldn't right. have been just one time. You know, is it blessed of the poor, blessed of the poor in spirit? You would think they'd get that right. But, right. you know, it's like four people telling the story four different ways. And so they're not all the seven last words, that's a long way of saying, are not in each of the Gospels. One of my favorite things you write there, I have a quote here, it's on page 7. You say, these phrases represent not only some of Jesus' final thoughts on the cross, at least as recorded in the Gospels, but also what the original communities for which the evangelists wrote considered to be the most important sayings. So the seven last words are important for understanding not only Jesus, but also the early church. Yeah, so if I wrote um, if I wrote a book about you and I concentrated mainly on your work um, at Brigham Young, right, mm-hmm. and not on your childhood, you know, people would um, would say, well, okay, for obviously for Jim Martin, you know, that's a very important part of this man's life, right? right. Uh, and if another person wrote a book about, let's say, uh, the hometown, where did you grow up, by the way? Uh, I grew up here in Utah. Yeah, so if another person was writing a, a book. And he himself was from Utah. He might spend a lot of time on your hometown and you're growing up. And now that doesn't mean that our books are wrong or our books are contradictory. It just means that we would stress one thing or another. And, you know, your academic career um, at, uh, at Brigham Young might not really figure very heavily into his book. He might not quote things that you said from academic articles and vice versa. I might not quote things that your mother said. Now, that doesn't mean she never said it or you never said them. It's just... It's just different perspectives, and I, and and it shows something about me, you know, what I think as an author, and it would show something about the other fellow or woman, you know, who was writing about Utah, what they considered important. So it's it, you're right, it it does it does sort of uh, give light to the different communities that the gospel writers are writing for, which differ, and also they're writing in different times as well. I think it's interesting to also think about how the saying sort of fit in individual gospels. So you could see. In Luke, uh, the phrase is, Father, forgive them, and uh, where he tells the thief he'll, he'll be with him in paradise. Um, you could see how those sayings are connected to other aspects of, of how Luke 
sort of told the gospel story. Like these might match up with key themes of his particular gospel compared to uh, sayings in other gospels. Well, well put. And you know what? I wish I'd put that in my book that way. <laughs> That's really well put. Absolutely. So we, we think of Luke as, you know, sort of the person who writes, for example, the parable of the prodigal son, yeah. right, which is all about forgiveness. And then in Mark, for example, uh, you know, he has my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, that's a really strong kind of indication of Jesus's humanity, yeah. right? Which comes out a great deal in Mark. Um, and Mark doesn't have a infancy or, a, a, you know, doesn't have a nativity story in there. Right. And he has out. very little in terms of the resurrection. So it's focusing mainly on kind of this, what I would say, this earthy, yeah. um, sort of almost impatient kind of rushed Jesus. And so, you know, you get that very human cry from the cross. I mean, he's human and divine, but it's, it, it really speaks to people of Jesus's humanity. So, yeah, maybe in the second edition I can put a little addendum <laughs> of what you just said. It's actually great. It's a great insight. Uh, so one of the things that you uh, pointed out here in the book as well is as you prepared this, uh, this sermons, uh, you say, if there was an overarching theme in my own reflections, it's the way that Jesus's sufferings help him to understand us. Um, and that kind of became, I think, the the keystone of the book that you kind of revisit time and again. Yeah, that was really important to me. And, you know, it's important to me in my own life. Um, you know, basically for, for me, I mean, um, you know, the traditional belief, uh, and, and it, pardon me if I'm, I'm not sure if this is a, a Mormon belief as well, is that, that, that Jesus uh, is fully human and fully divine. That's, that's what we believe. And um, so fully God, fully man. And in at least among many Catholics, I can speak for my own tradition, we tend to focus mainly on the divine Jesus. So, you know, which is certainly part of the story. Um, they're called as two natures, human and divine. And we tend to focus on the divine nature. So, for example, Jesus raising people from the dead and stilling the storm and things that we typically associate with the divine nature, his resurrection. And we see him as, you know, I mean, he is, you know, the son of God. And we tend to forget that he was a human being, that he would have gotten sick, you know, he, uh, you know, he may have sprained an ankle or two, he got headaches, he got tired, he, uh, you know, he had a body, basically. Right. And, um, and, you know, more to the point, you know, he grew up in Nazareth. He worked for 18 years from ages 12 to 30. I mean, he worked. He didn't just sit on his rear end and do nothing and wait for the baptism, but he, he was in a carpentry workshop, and that, that's hard work. We tend to think of it as this kind of romantic, you know, he has all of his Sears craftsman tools up on the, uh, you know, on a pegboard somewhere, but, you know, he, he, did, he did hard work. The, the time on the cross really does show us his humanity. He is suffering physically, uh, and I, would, I suggest in the book that he's suffering emotionally too i mean he's abandoned by his disciples and and he even suffers spiritually uh you know he says my god my god why have you abandoned me he feels this distance from the father so so what's the point the point is that when we pray to someone uh, when we pray to jesus we're not praying to someone who doesn't understand us we're not praying to someone who is far removed from us we're praying to someone who understands us not simply because he's god and he understands all things but because he's a human being and he experienced all these things. He 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 remembers these things. Remember when he comes back from the resurrection, he's bearing the wounds. Right. So so it's it is that kind of connection to the human Jesus that I, I find really helpful for me. 
So if, if you'll indulge me, there, there's a really interesting passage in the Book of Mormon that touches on this. Mm-hmm. It's in a book called Alma, chapter 7, and uh, it, it hits on this. It says, uh, Jesus shall go forth. This, this is a prophet sort of foretelling the mission of Christ. It says, mm-hmm. Jesus shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled, which said he would take upon him the pains and sicknesses of his people, and he'll take upon him death that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. And and this is the part that always sticks out to me. And Jesus will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. That's so beautiful. Some, yeah. De- That's beautiful. You know, I don't know much about Mormonism, but I agree 100% with what you just read. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, he, and you know, it's interesting, in the, it's interesting the use of the word bowels. Uh, you probably yeah. know in the, in the Greek world and in the New Testament, when we hear the term Jesus's heart was moved with pity, yeah. um, it's his bowels. bowels yeah. Uh, and so there's a sense of he feels it kind of in his guts. Yeah, deep down. Um, so, yeah, and he does, you know, he does take on, it's it, it's a really beautiful passage. He, he does take on our infirmities. Now, you could see that in a spiritual way that, right. you know, that sort of, you know, he, he kind of enters into the world with all of its sinfulness. But in a very homely way, uh, and I, I, I say this sometimes to shock people, he got sick. Yeah, you know he he had the flu. Uh, he had stomach aches, and then more severely, you know, at the crucifixion, he suffered intense physical pain. So yeah. you know, when when people who are struggling or or sick or whatever, you know, when they pray, I remind them that you know Jesus understands this. As you say, he took on uh, you know his our infirmities, and so it connects people more with Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Um, so. I assume that you've, uh, you know, you as as a Catholic, you've spent time thinking about these phrases uh, quite, you know, maybe even once a year as, as Easter approaches, and and Mormons don't usually parse them all out and 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 think about them now. I think it's a very valuable way to to study the scriptures, and so that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this book is because I think it would be a great meditation for uh, Latter Day Saints. So as you prepared the sermon, was there any particular phrase that you saw in a fresh way this time around, given that you've seen them so many times. Yeah, I really um, go back to again and again and again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is probably the most difficult word or saying or phrase for people from the cross. I mean, that is really something to hear Jesus say. And I, I go into it in some detail that there's a scripture scholar named Raymond Brown, a great New Testament scholar mm-hmm. who did a lot of work. He has a book called The Death of the Messiah, which is this, you know, like two-volume study on all the passion narratives, everything you would possibly want to know. And there's two interpretations of that. The first interpretation is that Jesus, and you've probably heard this, is calling, is is quoting Psalm 22, right? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And that the rest of the psalm is kind of a... Um, a prayer of thanksgiving. It ends with, uh, he did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. And so in that interpretation, Jesus is kind of invoking, invoking the psalm in its totality. So you're meant to say, all right, well, he's, he's actually, in point of fact, he's actually sort of expressing his hope in God. Right. But Raymond Brown and most scripture scholars say, no, what he is doing is he is saying he feels a, a sense of distance from the Father. And very interestingly, in I think it's always good to go back to the original Greek um, to see what's going on, because uh, the New Testaments were, as you know, written in Greek. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to Abba, which is an Aramaic word that means more or less dad. Not exactly daddy, but dad. It's a kind of affectionate term. When he's on the cross and he feels abandoned, he says Aloy or Ali in Hebrew, Hebrew Aramaic. Um, there's two versions, which is very formal. I mean, that's God or Lord. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it emphasizes the distance it would be like if me, I said to you, oh, Blair, will you help me? And then the next time I say, Mr. Hodges, just, just the, the, the sort of nomenclature and that the type of address underlines his sense of abandonment. And that's really hard for people to kind of grasp. But he does, you know, the gospel writers put that in there. And, you know, there's a reason they put that in there. And there's all sorts of ways of, of seeing how authentic it is. Um, one of the criterion is, the gospel writers would never put something in there that would be potentially embarrassing. And that is a, that is a phrase that is almost a sort of potential embarrassment. Like how could Jesus yeah. have, have said that? Yeah, so this is I your re- Lord and this is him like really just not looking like a Lord right now. Well, right. In the way you might think he would have it all together. And, and yet, you know, it, there's a, there, there is perhaps the most profound entree into his life. You know, now I don't think he despaired. He's not saying I don't believe in God. Cause remember he's calling out to God. But he's saying, I feel, I feel abandoned by you. I feel sort of distanced from you. And why is that at it's this point? It's almost harder to believe and feel like God went away completely. Than it yeah, was. and although, you know, I bet even a lot of your listeners may have had this experience where, you know, you believe in God and yet you don't feel God's presence. You oh, yeah. say, where are you? And, I've certainly uh, been through that. Yeah, yeah. And so, so you would understand Jesus's experience of that, you know? Uh, and I would imagine you probably have talked to people who, you know, who in your tradition feel like that. Oh, that they're not saying, yeah. yeah, they're not saying I don't believe in God, but they're saying, you know, where are you? Now, this saying is is one of the most difficult. This one and and uh, I thirst are both sort of just hit you deep down uh, because they just show Jesus's vulnerability. And this is a theme that you revisit throughout the book. And since the book's largely a meditation on Jesus's suffering on the cross uh, before the resurrection, I thought it was interesting that in your introduction, you took a moment to talk about joy as well. And this seems to be a common theme for you. Uh, in, in addition to some appearances you've made on, on the Colbert Report, uh, you've also written a book called Between Heaven and Mirth. And it's sort of about joy and humor. So talk about that theme in your writings and how it related to this project. Yeah, it's very important to see that uh, as important as certainly Lent is and Holy Week, you know, the last week of Jesus's life and, and certainly Good Friday, that that's not the end of the story, that the end of the story is Easter. And Good Friday makes zero sense without Easter. Uh, and we have, certainly in the Catholic tradition, we have tended to portray Jesus as sullen and morose and, you know, the man of sorrows. And, you know, you go into a Catholic church and really often the first thing you see, the very first thing you see, big as life, sometimes larger than life, is a big crucifix. And, uh, you know, the Protestant churches, you often go and you'll see a bear cross. It's this kind of symbol of, you know, the resurrection. Now, I think, you know, there's, you know, there are, there are ways to argue for both sides that, you know, one emphasizes the resurrection, the other doesn't kind of try to get away from the, the sort of sufferings of life. But the point is that we have made, many of us have made Christianity into this very somber, boring, 
morose religion. And, you know, you see pictures of Jesus and he's rarely smiling. Even after the resurrection, he looks kind of ticked off. There's some like more contemporary ones that are goofy, though, like Jesus laughing with a rollerblader or something. Yeah, there are. (laughs) And that's the irony, because, I mean, there's maybe two or three that I found that are actually, you know, decent and kind of not silly. It's hard to find like good. Yeah, not kind of goofy, kitschy ones. Right. But earlier you mentioned, which is a great line. um, He says, you know, look, you say to me, I'm a glutton and a drunkard. You know, now what does that mean? That means Jesus in his lifetime, by in his from his own lips, is being critiqued for living it up. Right? right. I mean, he turns water into wine uh at a wedding party. That's his first miracle, as we said, the wedding feast of Cana. You know, joy, 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 rejoice with me that my joy may be complete in you. You know, and when he's raising people for the dead and healing people, I mean the response is joy. So The majority of his life is about joy, and the end result of religion is about joy. So I wanted to put that in just to remind people that Jesus is not simply the man of sorrows. Even in this book, it's important to kind of hold on to that. Yeah, right, right. Uh, did the did Between Heaven and Mirth get pretty good uh, response? I think I think that was one of the times you were on Colbert Report was when that book came out. Yeah, it did. Um, you know, people were a little surprised when it came out because you know, ironically, uh, you read you go to a at least the Catholic section of your bookstore, and it's all, you know, suffering, the cross, all that kind of stuff. You can look in vain for a book on joy, yeah. humor, or laughter. And I wrote that for two reasons. One, I had been giving talks around the country about the saints, and I was talking, I would talk about jokey or funny stories that the saints did or said. You know, one of my favorite stories is Pope John the Twenty-Third, who was Pope from 1958 to 1963, who was just named a saint. So now he's St. John the Twenty-Third. Uh, had this great sense of humor. And, and I would tell these stories, and people were hysterical. And they said, I, I can't believe that. I've never heard of a pope having a sense of humor. Now, with Pope Francis, it's a little yeah. more common. But, you know, uh, John the Twenty-Third's most famous joke came when a journalist asked him very innocently how many people work in the Vatican. And he said about half of them. <laughs> you know, So, I mean, you know, that kind of stuff. And as I was giving talks, I realized people didn't know about that tradition of Catholic humor and particularly the humor of the saints. And also I met a lot of what I would call professionally religious people. I'm sure you do too, who seem ticked off all the time. (laughs) And you know, the, as we call them in the church, the frozen chosen. (laughs) And so I wanted to write a book. You're talking about, I, I'm sure you don't. I'm sure there's no one like that in your tradition. (laughs) Um, And I wanted to sort of write a book to remind people of the centrality of joy in the Gospels and our spiritual life, and then also in the lives of the holy people that we know. Yeah, that's good. So uh, we're speaking today with uh, James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and an editor-at-large at America, the National Catholic Review. His latest book that we're talking about today is called Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus. Um, which saying interpretation do you think would be most unexpected to practicing Catholics today, uh, recognizing their our diverse perspectives in Catholic pews? Is there any uh, saying that you think might be surprising? Well, I really, I, I'm going to come back. I, I really do think that my God, my God, why if you're forsaken me is just, is just sort of terrifying to people, but also, also forgive them for they know not what they do or for they do not know what they are doing. I mean, I think that would be more challenging. You know, forgiveness, I think is hard for all of us. And we often say, this is one of the things you were saying about, or to, to respond to your question about to seeing things in a new way. Yeah. We often say, well, you can't really forgive someone unless they have remorse. So right. I'm not going, if you do something terrible to me, you know, unless you 
really express remorse. I'm not going to be able to forgive you. Well, you know, Jesus is forgiving his executioners as he hangs on the cross, right? And let me tell you, they're not expressing a lot of remorse. I mean, they're, they're, they're mocking him and teasing him. And at some point they offer him some vinegar on a sponge. But for the most part, they're not saying, forgive me, Jesus. I am only doing this because, you know, Pontius Pilate made me. And that's hard for people. So I tell two stories in the book um, about a, a, a father who forgave the, the drunk driver who killed his son and a woman. These are both true stories who forgave the man who killed her sister, her sister's unborn child, and her sister's husband, you know, murdered them. And what the forgiveness does to people. In the first case, it freed this young man who was a drunk driver to have a a life, you know, a full life. And in the second case, it freed this, the murderer who was in jail um, to to be remorseful because he had never expressed remorse. So that's a hard one for people because they say, you know, I'm not going to forgive them until they apologize, for example. But that's not what Jesus asks us. Yeah, that is tough. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I would handle that, especially in the case of losing a family member. Uh, well, know. and yeah, and you know, uh, let to, to since we're both from different traditions, we'll take another tradition. I'm sure you remember the story of the the Amish people in oh, nickel yeah. mines. Yeah. I mean that that to me, boy, that is real Christianity. Yeah. I mean that is the community coming together. I, I admired them so much. Uh, you know, because the, the the human response is, you know, to you know, to rage and certainly anger, of course, would be I, I would be angry as well. And but I think there's something in us that's really touched when we hear those stories. And, and I suggest in the book that the reason we're touched is because it's an it's a glimpse of the divine. Yeah. I mean, it is a glimpse of something that we are drawn to and that we know. And it's just it's so beautiful. Yeah. It's a shocking reversal of uh, what you would expect. Yeah. Just like just like Jesus's life is yeah. and, and the resurrection, too. So as we talked about before, um, you began the book with a very basic primer on a little bit of biblical scholarship. And how much of a surprise or a challenge do you think that would be to your everyday Catholic? Are there any anti-intellectual or anti-scholarship strains that you have to reckon with uh, as a Catholic and as someone who tries to reach the public? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so much, you know, it's not so much anti-intellectual is that Catholics in general, here comes some big stereotypes, do not know their Bible as well as their Protestant brothers and sisters, you know, and as a result, and and why is that? Well, for a number of reasons. One, you know, the Bible was seen as the province of Protestant scholars. There's a great uh, line that I like to repeat. My my scripture professor, my New Testament professor, who died a few years ago, used to tell the story of growing up in uh, in a a Irish Catholic family in Boston and a door-to-door Bible salesman came to the door. I guess they still have those. And she opened the door. This is a true story. She opened the door and the guy said, you know, I'm selling a Bible. And she said, quote, we're Catholics. We don't read the Bible and shut the door. (laughs) This is a, this is a New Testament scholar's mother. Um, so, so part of it is they don't know a whole lot about the, I would say the construction of the gospels. And when you start to say things like, well, there are four different people that wrote for four different audiences at four different times. They start to think, well, well, wait a minute. What are you doing? What are you? Are you? Are you telling me that this is false or that this never happened? I said, no, no. It's just to understand how they were put together and why certain things are in one gospel but not in another, and stressed. And, and they get upset because they feel that you are trying to threaten something. Yeah. And I said, you know, I'm not saying that that 
this isn't true or these things really didn't happen or that I don't believe in these things. But we need to, to understand the Gospels and understand, you know, the differences that you come across. You know, you have to understand how they were put together. So it's called historical criticism. And it does, yes, it does threaten, I would say, a few Catholics when you bring it up to them. Um, but then all you got to do is say, look, why, do you, why did you think the Gospels don't agree on something? And yeah, so not not every Catholic, but a lot of some Catholics might be threatened by that. So that's why I try to do it gently at the beginning and, and talk about it as if using the example four different people telling the same story. You would naturally get four different stories. How about with um, church authorities? Do they ever get nervous with, with um, publications that talk about uh, biblical criticism or that sort of get into those issues? Like they might fear that it might unsettle some people or that it's somehow not appropriate in any way. Do you face any of that kind of uh, pressure? Not really. I'm always very careful in just laying out in the beginning, look, you know, I believe that Jesus Christ is fully human, fully divine. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he rose from the dead. You know, don't worry about what I'm now going to say. I'm also very clear when I speculate, right? You know, like what yeah. might have been going through Jesus's head. Well, you know, in the end, you know, for the most part, we don't know. And I mean, one one chapter that I say, look, this is very speculative. He says it is finished. Now, most scripture scholars say that what that means is I have completed it. I have done my mission. It is it is completed. But I use it as a kind of spiritual jumping off point to say that as he hung on the cross and looked at, you know, the fact that his disciples had abandoned him and that, you know, he was being put to death, you know, did he really know what was going to happen on Easter Sunday? And might there not have been an element of, of sort of sadness or disappointment, you know, like I've, I've done all I can do. This is it, you know? And so I introduce an element of perhaps disappointment, but here's the point. I'm very clear that this is speculative. You know, and I'm very, I'm saying this is, I'm, I'm not challenging any traditional teaching, but it's good to sort of put ourselves there and put ourselves, you know, in Jesus's place, as it were, as another way of trying to understand him. So, so to your point, I'm very clear about what church teaching is, but I'm also, and I'm also very clear when I'm being speculative. Yeah. Okay. So kind of putting your cards out on the table sort of as a, just to, to be forthright, but also as a way to sort of stick within the tradition and, and uh, yeah and also and I don't know what I mean you know we know we have a we have a privileged access into Jesus's mind on uh, Good Friday and on Holy Thursday in the Garden of Gethsemane through his actions and his words but you know I'm not Jesus so yeah. I don't know exactly what was what was going through his head at the time that's James Martin he's a Jesuit priest and editor of the Catholic publication America he's appeared in Venues like NPR, PBS, Fox News, Comedy Central, he's written over 10 books, uh, the latest of which uh, just came out. It's called Seven Last Words, an invitation to a deeper friendship with Jesus. We'll take a quick break and be right back. Believers and scientists have wrestled for centuries over the relationship between reason and faith, science and religion. Award-winning Latter-day Saint author and biologist Stephen Peck believes reason and faith are both indispensable tools we can use to understand God's creation. Evolving Faith, Wanderings of a Mormon Biologist is a collection of essays about Mormon theology, evolution, the environment, and other issues. Stephen Peck has the mind of a scientist, the soul of a believer, and the heart of a wanderer. In Evolving Faith, he provides welcome companionship for women and men engaged in the unceasing quest for further light and knowledge. 
Evolving Faith is part of the Living Faith book series from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship. To learn more about this series, go to maxwellinstitute.byu.edu slash livingfaith. Living Faith books are available at amazon.com. James Martin is a Jesuit priest and editor of America, the National Catholic Review. We're talking today about his new book, Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus. It's a meditation on the seven phrases Jesus has recorded uttering on the cross. Uh, now that we kind of have a sense of, of what the book is about, Jim, let's zoom out a little bit and talk about what it's like to publish a book like this in this genre. People might be surprised at your own professional and spiritual trajectories. So you you didn't always plan to be a, a Jesuit priest. No, in fact, I, I never planned to be a Jesuit yeah. priest. I, I didn't know, and maybe for your audience it's good to explain, a Jesuit uh, is a Catholic religious order, um, so that would be like the Franciscans or the Benedictines or the Dominicans. Pope Francis is a Jesuit. He's the most well-known Jesuit probably ever now. He's like the first Jesuit pope, right? He is. He is. And um, what does that mean? It means, well, we're priests and brothers like uh, you know other Catholic religious orders. We take vows of poverty, which means we, uh, you know, we don't own anything. We live you know together in a community. Uh, chastity, which means we don't get married and we live pe- we love people very uh, freely, but without sort of exclusive relationships. Um, and poverty, chastity, and obedience, which means we're obedient to our superiors. We could basically we go where they tell us to go. Um, and we live in community. And Jesuits are mainly known in the United States for their universities. So Georgetown, Boston College. Yeah, I went to Georgetown. Uh, oh, okay. There you <laughs> yeah, go. So that's Fordham. where I became familiar with. I saw yeah, these yeah. gravestones with SJ on them. Yeah, Society of Jesus. So so anyway, I didn't know any Jesuits. I didn't know what a Jesuit was, like most Catholics didn't before, I think, Pope Francis. And I was um, working at General Electric. I went to the Wharton School of Business at uh, the University of Pennsylvania and then took a job at GE. And, um, you were a business guy. Yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, was unsatisfied with that or dissatisfied with that and found the Jesuits. So, um, you know, it was a, it was a, that's a, sort of a, sort of a very short version of my vocation story, but I was not always interested in the Jesuits. So you're, you went to school, you, you were in mm-hmm. General Electric. Yep. Were you, were you, and, and you said your folks didn't really attend, uh, church often or that wasn't really a big no, part of No, we went, up, so. we, yeah, I mean, we went most Sundays. <laughs> okay. So you did, okay. So there was some attendance that you yeah. guys did. And, and well, was, I didn't go to any Catholic grammar schools. I didn't go to a Catholic high school. Yeah. We didn't say grace at meals. We yeah. didn't talk about God. We didn't, you know, um, yeah, I I was on the sort of fast track. Um, I wrote a book called In Good Company, um, which tells the story of my vocation. And the subtitle is The Fast Track from the Corporate World to Poverty, Chastity, and Obedience. And um, yeah, I mean, basically, I was very happy studying business. It was a really exciting thing to do. This is the late, well, this is the early 80s. Graduated in, in 82, the, the height of kind of being a yuppie. And, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, Reaganomics and all that and Wall Street. That was the world I entered into. Very exciting. Worked in New York and took a job at GE in Connecticut in their financial services arm, GE Capital, and got more and more dissatisfied and realized I was basically in the wrong place. Uh, you was know, just boredom? Did you just sort of feel like yeah, uh, just didn't have a sense of service to it? Or There's that. There was definitely that. There was a little stress. Um, mm. There were some things I didn't like about the corporate world. You yeah. know, now, the, let me, I always labor to emphasize this that you know for many people business is a real vocation yeah. right i mean they just it just is 
right? Yeah, they feel a calling to it. They yeah, feel, they yeah. feel, you know, they, they flourish. It's funny, I'm just popping into my head as Mitt Romney, right, who was with Bain, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was a vocation for him. You right. know? I mean, he, he loved it. He, he, I was sort of a square peg in a round hole, and, um, and one day I t- came home and saw a TV show about a Trappist monk named Thomas Merton, and that got me reading his autobiography and thinking about what's called in the Catholic world, it's a terrible phrase. We call it religious life, which means life in a religious order. And I got connected to the Jesuits and entered and never looked back, and great decision. I mean, you know, I learned a lot at Wharton. I learned a lot at GE. I think, frankly, the church could learn a lot from the business world and probably vice versa. But, um, yeah, it was, it was not something I planned. That is for sure. My parents were horrified. <laughs> horrified. I'm serious. They're, you know, well, because was, they, is they, partly that is partly that because of the family issue. Because sometimes you know people want grandkids, and I mean, if you become a, a priest, you took that vow of chastity. That's part of it. That was certainly part of it. We'll never have grandkids. Although fortunately, <laughs> my sister has two wonderful kids. Okay, so yeah. I have two nephews. Um, uh, one that was one. Two was you're going to be lonely. You know, you're you're going to yeah. be stuck away in some monastery somewhere, which is actually also hysterical because. I got a zillion friends now, um, and what was the other thing? Oh, and you know, you, um, you know, you kind of you're wasting your education. Like, what right, did you? You'd been to school. You, yeah, what'd you go to business school for if you're never going to use it? So you were a late comer, wasn't it? Your late twenties when you uh, kind of yeah. Although school? that's pretty that's pretty common these days oh, for Jesuits. So which is good because I think it's good for people to have had a kind of a job basically, and so that when you become a priest or a brother and you're counseling people. I mean, you know, for example, someone comes to me for spiritual counseling or spiritual direction or even confession, you know, and they say, my boss is a jerk. Uh, you know, I, I worked with bosses who were jerks and I, you know, it's not like I say, oh, well, you know, you must just, you must just accept that or, you know, that is your cross or, I mean, I can, you know, they may have to accept it and it may be their cross, but I can understand them. I know what it means to earn a living, which I think is a good thing from a priest for a priest to do. It's funny you mentioned Thomas Merton. I have his Life and Holiness sitting here. I've been uh, going through. Yeah, it's really good. Um, Another book that you might find interesting uh, is a book called Conversions by Craig Harleen. He's a uh, professor here at BYU, and he he wrote a story about a young man in the the 1600s who was the son of a Dutch Reformed preacher, and he converted to Catholicism and ran away with the Jesuits, right? Like uh, this was kind of a trope back then. The Jesuits would, you know, like steal, yeah, 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 steal the young men and whatnot, and so yeah. it, it it traces his uh, story of, of being a religious person who sort of, I mean, disappoints his parents much more obviously than 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 you ever could. But it, you should check it out. It's called Conversions. It's yeah, take a look. So it's it's a it's a it's a true story or yes, yes, that's uh, fascinating. Yeah, a, I mean, boy, from Dutch reform to Catholicism, you can't get worse. I mean, yep, it was family was huge. probably pulling their hair out. Yep, it was huge. It's a it's a unique book too. Yale Yale has a series on that. It's called oh, New okay. Directions in Narrative History, and it's sort of a experimental way of of looking at historical documents and stuff. And so he he actually found correspondence and, and, and I think a journal, uh, oh, wow. that this young man, it was a r- really rare, unusual find and, uh, uh, traces this young man's conversion. It's fascinating, but, uh, well, you know, the, the, the irony, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt yeah. you. Uh, the irony is that, you know, since some people don't know the Jesuits, uh, they don't know that they're a Catholic religious order. When I entered or when I decided I was going to join the Jesuits, a lot of my friends said, I thought you were a Catholic. now fortunately you know thank god i mean i thank god for this pope for many reasons but 
I no longer have to say, yes, yes, a Jesuit is a Catholic. It's just a different religious order, you know. So the Pope finally has put all that to rest, thank God. <laughs> so uh, so uh, one of your books was a New York Times bestseller. And you, you've written other books that have won other awards. I think, uh, and, uh, and you've written at least 11. I think this might be your 11th that's not an edited book. Is that right? I think that's right, yes. I've kind of lost count, but I think that's right. Right. So, and you've also earned a pair of master's degrees before your ordination. You're kind of an unusual Jesuit in that, that you don't have a PhD. Um, a lot of Jesuits do, but um, but you still you're an educated person and you're writing books for popular audiences. And I wanted to talk about what it's like to try to bridge the divide between uh, pulpit and podium, uh, university podium, and sort of church pulpit. And are there things that you risk losing in the translation? Is there, uh, you know, this sort of pop Christianity type thing? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I would say no. I think the key is making things accessible and inviting for people like Jesus did. I mean, Jesus spoke to people. The, we, we, the parables, one of the great definitions is a parable is um, a story drawn from nature or everyday life that so arrests the listener as to tease his mind into active thought, something like that. And nature or everyday life. So he talks about, you know, a woman looking for her coin, right? Um uh, weeds growing up against wheat, right? Uh, a sower going out to sow. I mean, he's he's talking to people in their own language, you know, and he's trying to speak to them. And that's what I'm trying to do. Now, that doesn't mean there's not room for, you know, the academic work and scholarly work. But what I try to do is make things accessible, just like this, the discussion we were having about the Gospels and how they were, you know, written. Now, you can read a million books on that and, you know, and they're wonderful. But I think most people aren't, looking for an academic textbook. And frankly, it's the same with Jesus. Jesus did not come down and say, all right, now I'm going to talk to you about the ineffable mystery of God, right? And I'm going to speak to you theologically about the vast tradition in the Jewish scriptures about forgiveness. No, he doesn't I, say I think that. he did. They just didn't write it down because yeah. like, uh, <laughs> yeah, it right. didn't fit on Well, a... you know, and frankly, in the Gospel of John, sometimes he does sound like that. But most of the time, they say... Right. Well, here's a great example. Who was our neighbor? Now, Jesus does not say, this is, this is my point. Jesus does not say, I'm now going to give you yeah. the 10 things that make up a neighbor. Instead, he says, a man was going down to Jericho. And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. So he's meeting people where they are. So, yeah, there are some things that do get lost in the translation sometimes when you, you know, sort of popularize things. But for the most part, I actually think that sometimes Christianity gets lost in the translation when it gets overly, you know, scholarly. Yeah, it's something, you know? it's double-edged sword. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So so I, I try to uh, sort of make it inviting for people. That's the word I like to use. And I've, I've kind of thought about it in terms of a division of labor. Like Paul talks about the body of Christ and sure. you, the head can't say to the, the Absolutely. Hand, uh, so you've kind of got people doing different tasks. And some people are able to write – um, you know, something that reaches a much wider audience, some people, and, and your book kind of builds on some of that, obviously. Well, and they're both necessary. Yeah, I mean, I mean, now, for example, uh, this book, Seven Last Words, and a recent book I did called Jesus, a Pilgrimage, I use the work of, you know, some of the yeah. great New Testament scholars, you yeah. know, who I know who are friends of mine. You know, that that's what they do, and then they're also supportive of me. So absolutely, we all don't have to sort of preach and live out the gospel the same way. So when it comes to commercialism, you took a vow of, of poverty, and, and yet you're a New York Times bestseller. And uh, how do you how do you handle that uh, issue in terms <laughs> well, of commercialism? All of my royalties and earnings go to the Jesuits, so that's part of poverty. So all the money that I make from my books, every penny, 
all the stipends I get from talks, all the donations I get goes to my community. So that's part of poverty. And does the community – do you sort of get like a living stipend to sort of like in yep. terms of traveling? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. You get an allowance basically and um, – uh, it's kind of like know, how Mormon missions are. Where well, it is. For two actually. years, we you know we get a monthly you know. Yep. Well, this is this is for my whole life. The whole, yeah, that's your whole life. Yeah. Well, you know that's the, that's the way the I mean you read the Acts of the Apostles. You know that's that's how they lived. Um, and it's actually very freeing. I love it because um, now there's some things I don't love. I mean sometimes I think oh I wish I had some nicer clothes or whatever. Or I sometimes think I wish I had a car which I don't have. Um, but and I sometimes think, oh, I wish I had my own apartment. But let me tell you, I, you know, we live in common, so I don't have to worry about, you know, food or clothing yeah. or, or any of that. But more importantly, this. So my book, Seven Last Words, um, I can put it out there and be happy with it and see how it goes. And I'm not, you know, sort of sweating bullets if it doesn't do, uh, fortunately, so far it's done really well. But, you know, if it tanked, you know, that's not my livelihood. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. And also the other thing is I'm not. I'm not, as we say in the Jesuits, uh, St. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, said we can't be attached in a, in a disordered way to things that are going to keep us from God. So if I'm so attached to making money or success or whatever, I'm not really free. And so yeah. it's, it's very freeing, actually. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of social justice, uh, this is interesting. Uh, you came to be on the Colbert Report in 2010. <laughs> there was an incident where a particular political commentator, who Mormons might know, uh, who shall remain nameless, mm-hmm. uh, made a remark about people should flee their religions if someone speaks about if they see social justice on their yeah. church website, they should like run away. So, how did Stephen Colbert um, find you as a person to bring in on that issue? Well, I've been on the show before a couple times. I think the first time in 07, uh, he had seen something I wrote about Mother Teresa. And interestingly, this does connect with what we're talking about. Mother Teresa had a kind of feeling of absence from God for right. you know, for like the second half of her life. Yeah, Come Be My Light, I think is yep, the book. Yep, exactly, right exactly. And um, so I'd been on a few times. And when this person talked about fleeing churches that preach social justice, he had me on. And I reminded him... You know, that Jesus asks us to take care of the poor about, uh, I don't know, countless times in the Gospels. And it's not enough to simply care for the poor. We have to, which I think this is a good formulation, we have to look at what keeps them poor. You know, what are the structures that keep them poor? And one of my favorite lines, which I'm not sure if I quoted on in that show, I think I did, was from a Brazilian archbishop, this real great, great, great apostle of the poor. His name was Dom Helder Camera. And I love this. And he said, when I feed the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist, you know, which is a great. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so that's what social justice is, is looking at um, structures. You know, not, structures and also, you know, how can our society be more just and help people? And I, you know, frankly, I, I don't know. Now, people, I understand, you know, and many of your listeners may differ on how to do that. But, you know, I think everybody is right. in favor of justice. And so... Justice on a social level is called social justice. So I was not in favor of what that political commentator said. And I it, went on and that's Colbert and talked about it. Yeah, it's one of the difficult things for me is because I, it's also a, it's a it, I would say it's the almost the main theme of the Book of Mormon is is, uh, you know, this exact issue of 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 the poor. And, and it comes mm-hmm. up again and again. And there's a cycle in the Book of Mormon of wealth uh, becoming a corrupting thing where, where people – uh, begin oppressing the poor, and it's this. So, so to hear that, it was interesting because um, 
that that commentator, he's from my own religious tradition. And so mm-hmm. when I see that publicly, it's sort of embarrassing. And I'm sure you've been through well, that. Uh, you know, yeah, with, let me tell you, you're not the only tradition yeah. that has people that say things that you're embarrassed by. I mean, you know, there's, there, are, there are many Catholics, you know, who are in the public uh, sort of stage today who say things that just make you scratch your head and say, are, are you reading the same Gospels? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, Jesus Jesus is very, you know, one of the litmus tests in Matthew chapter 25 um, about whether or not we're going to make it into heaven is how you treat the poor. Right. I mean, he can't be any clearer. And I mean, you can, as a, again, you can disagree on how best to do that, but... Right. You know, if you set that aside, you might as well set all the Gospels aside. So I think that's what it kind of boils down to is be, you, like you said, there are these underlying values that, that most religious people, most Christians, most Mormons, uh, most Catholics will share. But then there are internal disagreements within traditions even, uh, not, not just between oh, traditions, yeah. but within. And so sometimes people would criticize, let's say, apparently like liberal with scare quotes around it, mm-hmm. Catholic figures. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they would say, hey, stop politicizing religion. And then mm-hmm. there are also people who, like I would could say that to someone in my own tradition when they say avoid social justice. Hey, stop politicizing mm-hmm. religion. But but it's difficult to separate politics and religion. They're, they're intimately connected. How do traditions negotiate these internal tensions? Well, I think internally, I think it's always with charity. It's, it's listening to people. It's, you know, in the Jesuits, we have uh, a book called The Spiritual Exercises, and it was written by St. Ignatius. And it's a, it's a kind of a four- retreat where you follow the life of Jesus. The beginning of the book, believe it or not, is called the presupposition. And his presupposition is basically give people the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> and I mean, that, that sort of leads off his spiritual uh, classic, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's really important today where, you know, on social media or on TV and, you know, frankly, even in our political campaigns, there's a lot of demonization going on. I mean, it's really personal attacks. So I think that's the first thing, giving people the benefit of the doubt, never attacking them personally, never using the word you, you know, you're like this or, but, you know, talking about the argument and kind of talking about it in a, in a charitable way. I think that's important. And the other thing is recognizing that, you know, no one person has a lock on their faith. Um, You know, a lot of Catholics, and I I can speak from my own tradition, some Catholics, you know, in, in, on social media or in the media give the impression that, you know, they're Jesus Christ, you know, that they know everything and, they, you know, they're, they, so therefore they have a license to attack people, right? And right. as I like to say, they, they're so Catholic that, that they forget that they're Christian, you know? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot of mean-spirited attacks. And that just, that is so divisive, and I really try to run away from that. Yeah. Um, most, most people, most Catholics are not like that, thank God, though. So the way I wanted to conclude was um, by having you uh, read an excerpt from the book, uh, actually from the conclusion, if that's all right. Um, sure. And it's on page – it begins on page 125 there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is the end of the book. It's so spoiler alert to everybody out sure. there. Uh, but, <laughs> well, uh, I think if we read the Gospels, we know how they end. So. Yeah. Uh, but I think this really in, uh, captures the spirit of the book really well. And I think if, if you read uh, kind of from the – just 125 to the end there on page 126. It'll give people an idea of uh, of the spirit of the book. Um, okay. I'll introduce it a bit. I'm talking sure. about Jesus's miracles and how sort of dramatic and sort of awe-inspiring they would be. Consequently, it can be hard for some people to feel that they can know Jesus. But there are many windows into his human life. One is remembering that he lived a fully human life as a boy and adolescent, and young adult in Nazareth. 
Another is recalling that he spent 18 years of his life working, earning his daily bread, as many of us do. Another is thinking about his friendships with the disciples and people like Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. The Gospel of John points out, in no uncertain terms, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Each of these human experiences offers us a window into Jesus' life. Good Friday is another important entree into his life. Through his seven last words, we are invited to come to know him more deeply. Imagine a friend asking you to accompany him or her through a difficult time, the loss of a job, the death of a parent, major surgery. You would see your friend at his or her most vulnerable, most naked, most honest. It would be a privilege to accompany your friend in that way. It's something that would change your relationship forever. The seven last words are such an invitation. They offer us a privileged access into Jesus' life and therefore an entree into who he is. They help to reveal him to us more fully. Jesus then becomes someone whom we can understand better, as we would want to understand any friend. And he becomes someone with whom we can enter more deeply into relationship, which is what Jesus thirsts for. That's James Martin, reading from the book Seven Last Words, an invitation to a deeper friendship with Jesus. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Jim. My pleasure. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank you.